invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to pick right up where we left off last week. In fact, last week we read Mark 1, uh, verses 1 through 15, and we kind of glossed over verses 12 and 13. So I'm going to reread 12 and 13 and slow down on verses 12 and 13 for just a few minutes as we begin this morning. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels waited on him. This is how Jesus begins his ministry. He goes out into the wilderness. So there was a man who wanted to become a monk, and he joined a monastery. He joined a particularly strict monastery that took a vow of silence. So in this monastery, if you committed to being a part of it, you were only allowed to speak two words every ten years. So this guy joins the monastery, he goes 10 years of silence, and when the 10 years is up, he has a chance to speak to his abbot, which was the head of the monastery, so his first two words were, food bad. Waited 10 years to say that. Another decade goes by, and he has an opportunity to speak again, so he comes to his abbot, and he says, bed hard. So 20 years have gone by, and all he said is, food bad, bed hard, and then 10 more years go by of silence. And he comes to his abbot for his next two words, and he says, I quit. And the abbot said, well, I'm not surprised. You've done nothing but complain since you got here. 30 years and four words, and he's considered a complainer. But what's weird about a story like that is when you hear that, you think, 10 years of silence? And only being able to speak two words, silence is strange. That's weird for us. We hardly go five minutes of silence. Now, we may not always be speaking, but there seems to always be noise. There's always something to distract us, whether it's the TV or our computer or our phones, games on our phones or social media. There's always something to distract us. So even five minutes of silence seems kind of strange to us. And as adults... You know, we're kind of wired, programmed to think that we always have to be productive. We need to be doing something constantly. And if we took time for silence, we're wasting time. But in Mark chapter 1, Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. And then immediately the Spirit doesn't drive him into the cities. The Spirit doesn't drive him straight into ministry. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And then that's where we just read from Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Jesus goes through the waters, and into the wilderness. I've mentioned that Mark presents Jesus as leading a new exodus. And in the exodus story, Moses takes the Israelites and they go through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness. Jesus goes through the waters, and it's the Holy Spirit that leads him into the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days of silence. I imagine that Jesus didn't grab his iPhone or his computer He didn't stop by the library to grab some books or something, some games to put in his backpack to entertain him. No, immediately the Spirit drives him out there. He doesn't stop by the synagogue and say, well, let me at least borrow a few scrolls for this time while I'm out here. Why? Why does the Spirit lead Jesus into a time of solitude and silence? For 40 days, for us, especially as Americans, we're thinking, you know what? Life is short. Jesus' life is short. 
So his ministry is short. Why not just jump right into it? Why take 40 days away from everybody? What's going on in those 40 days? But for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit felt like it was important for Jesus to take this time, 40 days, kind of like the 40 years. This number 40 is significant in the Bible. 40 days away from everyone before he really begins his ministry. And he's, in verse 13, we're told he's tempted by Satan. We have a brief introduction to Satan here. You know, the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, they give much more details of what was going on during these 40 days. Jesus was fasting, and Satan is tempting him, and Jesus is quoting scripture back to Satan, and probably because he has it memorized and internalized, not because he had a copy of scripture out there with him, but he's tempted. We don't know exactly when those temptations come, but we know there's some temptation involved, and he's with the wild beast. Did you catch that in verse 13? For 40 days, he's out in the wilderness, and he's with the wild beast. I've mentioned now for the third lesson in a row how much Mark relies on the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 through 9, We get this great text about how the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. And all these wild animals and people will be together as one, not harming each other. So it seems like Mark chapter 1 and verse 13 is kind of an allusion to this scene that we have in Isaiah chapter 11. So he's out in the wilderness for 40 days. Satan is tempting him. He's with the wild beast. And the angels are there ministering to him. What that looks like, we don't know. The angels didn't protect him from being tempted. But somehow the angels are there and they're comforting him and they're with him. So I want to offer three words to help us understand the rhythm of life that we see in Jesus throughout Mark. And this first word is the word silence. Forty days of silence. You know, hearing that story about a monk who goes 10 years without speaking is strange for us. It's hard for us to go a few minutes without silence, but yet Jesus spent 40 days in silence. He took a little retreat away from everyone. Because it's football season, I'll use a football example, but you might recognize the guy in this picture. This is Cole Beasley. He's a wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, Pretty good. Not too bad. A few years ago, He entered training camp in August, and he was completely overwhelmed with the practices, with the pressure, with the media. All of it was new to him. He didn't know how to handle it. He wasn't prepared for it. So he told his coaches in August, right before the season was about to start, I'm not sure if I even want to play football anymore. So the coaches said, take a short sabbatical. Go home. Spend some time, collect yourself, and decide whether or not this is what you want to do. So he went home, and he took two days of silence. He took a little retreat away from everything. And it was during those two days away from football, away from practice, away from the teams, that he realized this is what he wants to do. He discovered his purpose. He discovered his why. But he couldn't do it in the midst of all that busyness. He had to step away for a little while. So we see in Jesus, he kind of retreats. He retreats away from everything, and he doesn't go out there for 40 days to try and discover whether or not he wants to get into ministry. But Jesus goes 40 days to center himself so that he can minister and operate from a deep center rooted in the love of God. And then, 
We spent a lot of time last week on verses 14 and 15, so we'll, we'll skip over that right now. But verses 16 and following, he begins his ministry. He goes out to where the waters were, and there's some fishermen, and he has Peter and Andrew and then James and John, and he just simply extends this invitation to them, follow me. So they leave everything behind and they go follow him, which is an amazing story in and of itself. The type of people that Jesus calls, the type of disciples, the fact that they're willing to leave their family business behind that probably would have been passed down from generation to generation, and they go and they follow Jesus. And then in verse 21, they go into a synagogue. And this is probably all one day here. They go into the synagogue, which would have been kind of like us going to church, where they would sing and they would read scripture and someone address the crowd. You know, it's kind of like that. But in the synagogue, there is someone with an unclean spirit, someone who's demon-possessed. And Jesus wipes out this unclean spirit. He casts it out of the man, and he's teaching, and he's teaching with authority, which I find it interesting that he doesn't go out to some overpass, or he doesn't go out to some alleyway in a street, he goes to the synagogue to find somebody with an unclean spirit. And it's there that Jesus performs what we would call a miracle, his, showing his authority over Satan, drives out this demon, and then in verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they go to the house of Simon, and Andrew, and James, and John, and in this house, Peter's mother-in-law is very sick. So Jesus heals her, and then she hops up and immediately, immediately begins to serve them. And then in verse 32, it says, that evening. So this is all one day. It seems like it's just one day. He calls his disciples, he goes to synagogue, he's teaching, he's casting out demons, he's healing Peter's mother-in-law, and then in verse 32, we'll slow down and I'll read that. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered at the door. The whole city. We don't know the population, but imagine Jesus being in Longview and someone he hearing that here's this guy who can heal you of your problems and then the whole city just gathering at this house waiting their turn to come in contact with him. That's a lot of people. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak. So there's a hint to the messianic secret we see in Mark because they knew who he was. The demons know that he is the son of God. The demons know who he is. But this is just one day. That's a pretty full day. It reminds me of this episode of Saved by the Bell. Anybody used to watch Saved by the Bell? So you probably know this picture. Maybe you recognize this episode of Zach Morris and Jesse Spano. And Jesse is a smart student trying to make good grades and get a scholarship to get into college, but she's also involved in every extracurricular activity you can be involved in. So she's just completely overwhelmed and overworked and too busy. So instead of having the wisdom to say, no, I can't do certain things, uh, you remember this episode? She starts taking caffeine pills because she thinks if I just have more energy, I can accomplish more. And then towards the end of the episode, Zach comes to confront her and he discovers she's taking these caffeine pills. You remember that? And she starts singing for the uh, rehearsal she's been doing that I'm so excited. And then she says, I'm so scared. And then she has this breakdown moment. I'm not going to sing it like she did. But if you know Saved by the Bell, you remember this episode. 
When I read Mark chapter 1 and I place myself in the shoes of Jesus, this is what I would feel like. This is too much. There's too many people who have needs. There's too much to accomplish. Too many people relying on me. So how does Jesus get through a day like this? And this is just one day. How does he get through it? He doesn't take caffeine pills, but he doesn't break down either. Well, we get a clue in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. Mark throws these little tidbits in there throughout the telling of his gospel. In verse 35, in the morning... While it was still very dark, he got up and he went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. So all these needy people, all these things that he needs to accomplish, and he spends 40 days out in the wilderness, and he comes in and he has his ministry, and now he gets up early in the morning, and he goes off to a solitary place, to a deserted place by himself, and he spends time praying. Why does Jesus need to do this? Why can't he just keep going, right? He's the Son of God. He has the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus still has needs as a human. Jesus wanted to make sure that he was on his mission. He wanted to make sure that as his popularity grew, that the crowds were not going to drive his agenda. And in order to do that, he has to retreat. He has to step away from all of the busyness and go to a solitary place and spend some time with God. So our first word was silence. Our second word is solitude. Uh, Kenneth Boa says that silence is the catalyst for solitude. And those two words kind of go together. Solitude is a form of fasting. Solitude is fasting from society. It's getting away from all of it. Solitude is saying, I'm not going to be molded by the crowds. I'm not going to be molded by everything I'm constantly seeing, the flood of images that are constantly coming before me. Solitude is unplugging and getting away from all of it. So we see in Jesus, already in chapter 1, he makes time for silence and solitude, time to go be with God. So where is your place of solitude? solitude? Where is your solitary place? There's a movie that came out a few years ago called War Room, and in this movie, uh, this lady, the main character, is praying desperately for her husband and for other things going on in life, so she cleans out her closet, and she dedicates her closet to be her solitude place, her sacred space where she is going to go and do battle and pray, and she starts writing her prayers and taping them to the wall, and that closet becomes her place of solitude. So where would be your place of solitude? It, you know, maybe it's your bedroom. Maybe you need to create a space like the closet. Maybe it's the garage or a shed or in your car. I don't know where it would be for you, but where is a place that you can go to to escape all the noise, all the busyness, all the distractions, and spend some time with God? Jesus was constantly on the move. So where was his solitary place? Well, I can picture him on this busy day, scouting it out, knowing tomorrow morning I'm getting up and I'm going there, and that's where nobody can find me for a while. That's the place where I can go and spend some time with God. So that's what he does in verse 35. And then in verse 36, apparently everybody else wakes up. Simon and his companions hunted for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you, in verse 37. 
The NIV says everyone is looking for you. The Greek is literally everyone seeks you. Uh, We were talking about this text and some of these challenges we want to offer to our church in our staff meetings. And a couple weeks ago, Cade Cox, our youth minister, pointed out verse 37, and he said, I like that. Everyone is looking for you. And that statement should be true on many different levels. If you think about human beings who are created in the image of God, everyone is searching for something. And in a way, everyone is searching for God. Everyone is searching for Jesus. They just may not know that's what they're searching for. And they try to find other things to fulfill that longing in their heart. Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is searching for you. Should be true of our church. That should be a statement that's true of us. That that's what we do day in and day out. We search, we long, we seek for Jesus. And if we seek him, we will find him. So Peter comes to Jesus and he almost seems a little bit frantic, like he's stressed out, like maybe he's anxious. And he's like, this whole town is looking for you. There are people with needs. And look at his response. Jesus responds to them in verse 38. Let us go on to the neighboring towns. So Peter says, let's go back. Come on, there's people. We need to do this stuff. You know, Peter's always antsy. Peter's always uh, impulsive and responsive. But Jesus says, no. We're not going back into this town, we're going into other towns. Well, how does Jesus know where to go and what to do? What does his silence and solitude and his alone time with God accomplish for him? Well, I think it offers him some discernment. Jesus knows that the agenda for his ministry will not be set by the crowds, by what people want. And that's the way Peter is seeing it. He doesn't see the shallowness of the crowds. He's just seeing the popularity. But through Jesus' alone time, through the solitude, through the silence, he has a clear head. And he knows, no, we need to go into the neighboring towns also. So that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. So that I may preach, as some versions say. And then in verse 39, And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. So in verse 38 and 39, Jesus says, no, we're going to go to these other towns because that's what I've come to do. I've come to preach. He's preaching the euangelion, the good news, the gospel. He's preaching repentance. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. And people are listening, but he's going around spreading this message. And then life picks up again. It gets busy again. And every town that he goes to, when he casts out a demon, when he heals someone, people hear about him, and they show up at the door. So his life is filled with people and busyness and needs. But then we see throughout Mark that throughout all the busyness of his schedule, he builds in these times to step away and to be with God. He does it by himself, and he does it with his disciples in Mark chapter 3 and verse 7. As the crowds are increasing, Jesus grabs his disciples and the word says they withdraw. All these people, but they take time to withdraw and the crowds still follow them. But it's important for him to withdraw. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 13, Jesus goes off to a mountain by himself. And it's there that he chooses his 12 apostles. In Luke chapter 6, Luke adds in a detail that Jesus spent the night praying to God. So before he makes this important decision, he goes off by himself to be alone 
with God. And then in Mark chapter 6 and verse 31, his disciples come back from their little mission trip. And then Jesus says to them, come away with me for a little while and let's get some rest. He knows that in the busyness of the, for the disciples, for himself, that rest, that being away, that solitude, going to a solitary place, that that's important. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus sends his disciples on and he goes off to a mountain by himself to pray. In Mark chapter 9, he grabs three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up to a mountain by themselves. They withdraw, and that's where he's transfigured. And then towards the end of the gospel of Mark, before he'll, he's going to be betrayed, put on trial, and ultimately crucified, which was the plan from the beginning, which he knew was going to happen right before all that happened, where do we find Jesus in Mark chapter 14? He goes off by himself, he brings some of his disciples with him, and he goes off by himself, and he spends time praying. So you just see, just catch a glimpse as we study throughout Mark, this rhythm of the life of Jesus. He's with people, he's busy, he's helping, he's doing amazing things. That's why as churches, we try to mimic what we see in Jesus, and that's why we have things like caring and sharing, and we support missionaries, and we try to be involved in helping people because we see that this is what Jesus does, but that's not all he does. He spends time centering himself, operating from a deep center with these times of silence and solitude and prayer. So prayer is that third word, but I put in there, notice the order of the words. I don't think Jesus just hopped into his daily prayer routine and just said, okay, now i got this list of people I need to pray for, so I'm just going to start praying for it. I think the retreat for 40 days in the wilderness, or Mark 1, 35, when he goes off to a solitary place, or Mark 6, 46, when he sends them on their way and he goes off to a mountain, I think there's some time of silence. There's time of solitude, and there's time of prayer. But it's like he's collecting himself, and he's coming before the throne of God. He doesn't just jump right into it. So I don't know what your prayer life looks like. I don't know what your normal prayer routine is, or, or how you pray, or what you pray about. I spent July doing a sermon series on prayer, and we talked about I told you the importance of the Lord's Prayer and my daily prayer routine and saying it slowly. We talked about Psalm 23, the Shepherd's Prayer. About eight days ago, I was feeling it. I was feeling the stress of life and ministry, and I was reminded of a prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr that is prayed in a lot of 12-step recovery programs. It's called the Serenity Prayer, and it's just a simple prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That has become a part of my prayer life the last week, and it's been very helpful to come before God and to ask him to give me wisdom to know what areas do I need to focus on and what are things that I just need to accept that I can't change. I don't know what Jesus prayed, but he's going off by himself, spending time, silence, solitude, in prayer, he has a regular rhythm of spiritual disciplines. If you're not familiar with this word, spiritual disciplines, you may be thinking, why do church people use language like this? What is a spiritual discipline? A simple definition of a spiritual discipline is any activity that helps you live life as Jesus taught and modeled it. 
Whatever activity, whether it's Bible study, quiet time, fasting, an intentional time of worship, whatever it may be, any activity that's helping you grow in Christ-likeness. As we study through Mark and we practice spiritual disciplines, it's anything that's going to help us reflect what we see in Jesus. There's a lot of great books on spiritual disciplines. There's a lot of spiritual directors that are great gurus at spiritual disciplines, but there's a guy named the late Dallas Willard, and he said there's two main categories of spiritual disciplines. There's disciplines of engagement, where you intentionally engage in something, whether it's worship or a time of giving or a time of service or whatever it may be, a certain type of Bible study. It's in a discipline of engagement where you purposefully go and do something, and you discipline yourself in that area, and there's also disciplines of abstinence. This is where you intentionally, for a time, refrain from something, like we see in Jesus in Mark 1, verse 12 and 13, where he goes off for 40 days, and he fasts, and he practices silence and solitude and prayer. These are disciplines of abstinence. And over the next few months, as we study through the gospel of Mark, I've I've kind of hinted at this along the way, and if you're a Connect Group leader, you've seen it in the emails. But we, what we want to do is offer you some challenges. We don't want it to just be a sermon. We want to offer you some challenges that you can take home with you and practice. So we're going to have a few church-wide challenges, and we're going to use our Connect Groups as a way, whether or not you're following this Connect Group guide or doing your own study, use your Connect Groups as a place of accountability. A place to share how these challenges are going. And if you're in your connect group and your connect group leader doesn't bring it up, then call them out on it. Say, hey, we need to spend five or ten minutes talking about these challenges. And here's your first challenge as we see in the life of Jesus. It's to take 15 minutes each day, this week and for the next two weeks, and spend some alone time with God. Just 15 minutes. That doesn't sound like a long time. And some of you may be thinking, I already do that. We'll spend 30 minutes then. But 15 minutes for a majority of us sounds like a good thing. But when it comes to a daily routine, it's not something that we normally practice. So your first challenge is for every day, starting today, take 15 minutes to go and be alone with God. Practice silence. Go to a solitary place. Spend some time praying. Maybe spend some time meditating on God's Word, but maybe part of that will be time of silence. And maybe you write down, you journal your thoughts and your experiences going through these challenges. I don't know what that's going to look like for you. You may not receive some sort of special revelation or voice from God. But what you're going to do is create space for God to work in your life. So we see that Jesus needed this. And he probably spent more than 15 minutes, but this is a good, reasonable place to start. Jesus needed it, so so do we. Go to a place where you can eliminate distractions. For me, I'm going to take my Fitbit off. I'm going to leave my phone somewhere else. My Fitbit still scrolls the text messages, so I'm going to take that off, and I'm going to go to a place where I'm not going to be distracted. I'm going to set a kitchen timer for 15 minutes. All right, so I don't use the timer on my phone. And spend this time with God. And as you do this, pay attention to your soul. Pay attention to what's going on within you. It doesn't make you uncomfortable to sit in silence with nothing, with no phone, with no remote control to grab, with nobody to talk to for 15 minutes. Is it weird for you? Do you like it? 
Are you tempted to fall asleep? You know, what is it like for you for 15 minutes? And ask yourself the question, what is God trying to teach me? Sometimes it's hard for God to really reach within our hearts when we don't create space to listen. So this is creating space to connect with God as we see modeled in the life of Jesus. There's a book called The Way of the Pilgrim. Uh, We don't know who the author is, but we know he's a 19th century Russian peasant. And it's a short book, and it just journals his experience as he searches for God. His wife passed away tragically. His parents were gone. His brother had disowned him. So he had nothing left, so he just traveled around looking for God. He would go to different churches and talk with different spiritual leaders and ask, how do they pray? What do they pray? And he stumbled across something called the breath prayer, something I talked about a couple months ago, just a short one-sentence prayer. You breathe in, Lord Jesus, and you breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. So he said he started praying this prayer all throughout every day, and he synced it up with the rhythms of his heartbeat. And in his journaled experiences, he said, I grew, I grew so used to it that I practiced it constantly. I grew so used to it that I practiced it constantly. As we challenge you to spend 15 minutes of quiet time alone with God, the purpose is that eventually we grow so used to it that we want to do this. We, we're going to make the time for God every day. We make God, time for God throughout each day, but purposefully, intentionally, for 15 minutes. And in this book, he said, prayer was bubbling up in my heart, and I needed peace and silence to give, it an, out, to give an outlet to its rising flame. I like the way he worded that. You may not know it, but I think there's a rising flame within you. And it's time we give that some attention as we see Jesus doing that throughout his ministry. And your first thought may be, I don't have time. School's going on, work is busy. How can I find time for just 15 minutes a day? And my answer to that would be, you can find time. If you have time to go through and like stuff on Facebook, if you have time to catch up with your most recent TV shows, which recently I found myself telling someone how busy I was, and then in the same conversation, we talked about a few TV shows that we were caught up on. And I was like, well, that sounds like it doesn't go together. If you have time to do those things, you can have time to do this. Victor Hugo wrote a book called 93. And in this book, he tells a story about a group of men who are out in the middle of the ocean on a ship, and a violent storm came through, and this storm was knocking the boat back and forth. And these guys were experienced out on the ocean, so the storm did not scare them. They knew what to do. They know how to compose themselves with the outer elements. But what really scared them was they heard this noise below deck, and they looked down there, and they were carrying with them a cannon. And the cannon had broke loose, so every time a wave would toss them back and forth, the cannon was rolling on its wheels from one side to another, banging the side of the ship. So what they were worried about is being destroyed from within. So two brave men went down there and volunteered to try to catch that cannon and refasten it. So what frightened them was not the outer elements, but it was what was going on within. And that's probably true for most of us. We can't control 
what goes on around us. We can't control how people treat us. But what we can control, what we do need to focus on, is what's going on inside of us and how God is working from the inside out. And we see in Mark 1, and Mark 3, and Mark 6, and Mark 9, and Mark 14, that Jesus takes time to pay attention to where God is leading him and how God is leading him. So we just want to create space for God to work. I mentioned last week, discipleship does not happen on accident. It's a deliberate pursuit. It's an intentional pursuit. So we want you to take these challenges serious and be intentional. And maybe that starts today. You know, we mention every week we're going to have shepherds that are around the building. So you don't have to come up front if you're not comfortable with that. But if you need to respond, if you need to spend some time praying, Right now, I want to invite you to stand up. Tony's going to come back up here, and we're going to continue a time of singing.